Welcome to the Broken Pie Chart Podcast, episode 104. Today I have my semi-permanent, sort of permanent co-host, Jay Pestercelli back. Jay, how you doing? Good, Derek. Great to be back, as always. Yes, of course, uh, Jay Presicelli, ZegaFinancial.com is the website. You can check out all our our portfolios and everything like that. But, you know, today we've been getting a lot of questions from not only clients, but advisors and their clients about, you know, hey, should I be in gold? Should I be in cryptos? And so I thought it'd be a good opportunity just to kind of talk through really, you know, the idea of why why hedging in the long run might be better than any of those two. And so we'll get into that. I think Jay, you know, I'll begin by just talking about why, you know, the appeal of cryptos and the idea of inflation. And then maybe we can get into a little more about, you know, direct hedging on, on equities versus using gold in a portfolio or using something like Bitcoin. That sounds good. Yeah, that sounds great. We, we definitely are getting a lot of questions and comments about those two Assets? Can I call? Can I call crypto an asset? Let's just say it probably will be if it isn't. Well, all right, we'll we'll get to that. Okay. So, <laughs> I have some I have thoughts there. Yeah. Okay. So the the first thing is let's just talk about inflation. The headline CPI came out, and I think it was one point forty or one point four percent. And core CPI, which excludes food and energy, that was one point four one. So. There's a lot of debate about is CPI the right metric to measure inflation, and you know people point to hey you know silver's up, uh, what what else corn is up you know different commodities are up uh, within the CP so the CPI is a basket of stuff, and initially it was a fixed basket so you had sort of you know chicken and steak were in there and they were always a, a certain percentage. And then they changed it a little bit and they did something called the substitutes. And they would say, okay, well, if well, if chicken goes up a thousand percent, we take chicken out, we put in, you know, salmon or something like that. And then they made another adjustment, and it was called hedonic adjustments. And that sounds fancy. It is. It's uh, I've never actually calculated it by hand. But that's where you take, let's say, an iPhone that last year was a thousand dollars, this year is twelve hundred. You say, Well, it went up twenty percent. Well, hold on a second. What if it has more computing power, more features, more benefits? You adjust that to, to account for all those new things, and maybe it didn't go up 20%. Maybe it didn't go up at all after you, you do those things. So there's a lot of debate just on, on inflation in its, its own self. When we get to cryptos like Bitcoin or gold, the idea for people who are really you know cheerleaders of that is that the dollar is losing purchasing power over time. Um, whether you believe the CPI or not, whether that's the right measure. Um, and for example, in the CPI, I'm just looking at the the Jan numbers that just came out, and you know it was 1.4 percent. But guess what? What's not 1.4 percent? Well, motor vehicles and parts was 4.6 percent gain. Used cars was almost 10 percent. You know, uh, medical care services, 2.91%. By the way, energy was down minus 3.65%. So good, it cost you less to, at the pump. But the point of all this is that, you know, your personal inflation is going to be different and your real inflation might be more than this. If you're older, chances are you're spending more on medical care. And by the way, if you're older, you're probably not paying for college. 
unless you're paying for, you know, grandkids. So the, the appeal of, of going into something besides the dollar is that over time, we know the dollar is losing purchasing power because of inflation. So it's, it's, you're looking for a substitute. You want to go into gold. You want to hold, you know, coins. You want to hold cryptocurrencies. And the idea is that these will preserve your purchasing power, right? So that's sort of the appeal to, to these. Now, I, w- I would say that, um, you know, we think about, let's say, Bitcoin or something like that. I, I do have some questions about, you know, is it really a currency? And Jay, you know, the, the idea of a currency, it's a medium of exchange. It's something that people use to do transactions. I don't know that Bitcoin is, has been successful in that regard. I mean, you can, some places take Bitcoin. Yeah, I mean, more and more places take Bitcoin, right? The big headline this week was Tesla will take Bitcoin if you want to buy one of their cars, right? And I think I saw something this morning that Bank of New York is going to start to offer, you know, kind of cryptocurrency stuff. So I think it's becoming a little more mainstream, Derek, right? Certainly more than, say, three years ago. Right. But wouldn't you agree, though? I mean, who would actually, I mean, imagine you you paid for a, a car or you sold your car for, you know, one Bitcoin when it was 20000 dollars to one Bitcoin. And then today it's over 40. Guess what? You know, you, you just lost 20 grand because you sold it. You know, it's, it's too volatile to be a currency, right? I mean, it's. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I, I don't, you know, I think even the companies that do accept it as a form of payment probably don't hold it very long on their books as such. I mean, it looks like they'll hold a little bit, uh, but for transaction purposes, but I, I, I'm with you, Derek. It's, the the volatility of the currency itself makes it difficult for you to know what you really what your buying power is. It goes back to your whole, you know, point about the the buying power of the dollar, right? You have to know what you're going to be able to do with those funds. So, I'm with you as a as a currency. Uh, hard to, you know, unless it, yeah, it's it's hard to to hold it for any period of time, you know, with the volatility of it. There's one of the athletes I think uh, was it somebody in the New Jersey Nets. I, I, you know, I could be wrong. I could be completely wrong on, on the sport, the team name, but they wanted to be paid in Bitcoin. <laughs> and I remember Josh Brown, you know, who's on CNBC, he tweeted out, he's like, why do you have to get paid in Bitcoin? Couldn't you just get paid in dollars and immediately convert it to, to Bitcoin? Like it, it's, in my mind, it, it hasn't been a currency yet. Not, not in any way, shape or form. It's not like, you know, you said, well, I'm going to go live in Europe and I want to get paid in euros and I'm going to hold my euros. But who's to say I couldn't buy euros with U.S. dollars? So I, I, I think it's, to me, if, if we take the, it's a currency out of the, the equation. And by the way, a lot of people say, you know, the other argument is we want to use this because the government can't track it. But if, if the blockchain is, gonna, is so good, doesn't that mean they can track everything? I don't know. I'm, it, I'm ignorant on this point, Jay. Well, then you've, you've well, you, so listen, I'll, I'll overlay, you know, you've got governments, uh, cooperating to get that information. So I've, I've got a handful of cryptocurrency accounts and I've some in the US and I have some in Europe. And, you know, uh, these days Coinbase, which is probably the most popular crypto uh, broker in America, uh, they now report your transactions to the government. Um, so they are tracking it and they show if, you know, what you bought, you sold, transferred, that's a big deal. Um, and that's all reported now. So listen, you're obligated as American and as an American to report your your returns anyway, right? So whether the 
the company's reported or not, you're still obligated to do it. However, uh, the overseas uh, brokers that I have, they don't report anything to the U.S. government, right? So I have to do that math on my own. Now, uh, one of them converted their, they broke their business up. And because I'm a U.S. resident, it, uh, it was Bitstamp that did this. Because I'm a U.S. resident, they said, well, now, you know, the U.S. government wants us to report. So we're putting you into a different category because you were a U.S. resident. Now we're going to report those transactions. So this is all in flux. The government has said you need to report your transactions. Um, yeah, and I think they can, you know, it is reportable. Now, if you want to hide, which uh, that has always been the argument that, you know, you have the ability to, you know, create some opaqueness around your financial transactions, I'm deliberately avoiding certain words there, um, then, okay, then, then, then cryptos have always been there for that. And I think that gives it some base right? For, you know, activity that uh, doesn't want to be as transparent. Um, so there's some value there as a, um, as a vehicle for, uh, you know, for trading value. But, you know, I think when it comes to tracking, the longer we go, the more and more uh, they will continue to uh, uh, provide transparency. Now, there is one current one, at least one uh, crypto that deliberately will not share uh, the electric, the electronic trail. And, uh, uh, it's one that, you know, is deliberately made for just that purpose. And so it will, you know, either it goes away or it will never report its transactions. And so, you know, there are some that just create that, Hey, you want to, you know, not share your information with, uh, with any government, uh, agencies and, you know, decide to do all your own self-reporting They they made one of those too. So, you know, there, there is all, there are all sorts of cryptos that you could use depending on what you're, you know, you're trying to uh, trying to achieve, I guess. But I think you're right. Things are trending towards the government's going to know. That's not the right reason to trade Bitcoin is because you think you can hide from your taxes. You know, I feel bad for Did you read about the guy? You know, in the old days, you would sort of do a computer program and you would keep your Bitcoin like on your hard drive. Did you read about this guy in England who's like begging the, the government to go let him look in a landfill? I guess he tossed his computer. And there's millions of dollars, or I don't even know what it is, but there's there's a lot of money in Bitcoin, um, and he wants to go look at the landfill. I feel bad for that guy. Like that was before the the whole Coinbase and all these firms, right? Um, I don't know if you heard about that, Jay. I did, I did. You know that is before, uh, you know that is when people were mining on their own and storing it on their own hard drive. Um, and so, yeah, that was a risk. Those are interesting stories. These days, with the brokers and the wallets that you have. Uh, that that's not a risk. Like that's not going to happen for someone that's on, you know, Coinbase. So to me then, if, if we've established that it probably is not, um, fits the technical definition of a currency yet, because you're not necessarily, um, it, to me, it's more of a, people are, are buying it as a store of value. And so maybe it's, it's similar to gold. Um, I've made this comparison, but people don't like it. You know, I've, I've talked to people who are really into the, the cryptos. And I said, what's the difference between buying, you know, Bitcoin and buying, uh, you know, Mickey Mantle rookie cards, baseball cards? <laughs> yeah. And they get very mad at me when I say that. But is there any difference between Bitcoin and and something else with a store of value? So that's, that's I think, where it's landing as an asset. And, you know, if it is a store of value... It's now we're getting into there's buyers and sellers, right? Yeah, that's right. And that's what makes a market. 
right? That's uh, that's always what makes a market. Who's willing to what they're willing to, you know, buy it for, and what someone's willing to sell it for makes the market. Obviously, that's that's probably the most obvious thing I've ever said. Sorry. <laughs> so if we if we think it's a store of value, or or people perceive it as a store of value, um, you know, then then we got to look at okay. So like any asset, if you're trying to maintain your purchasing power, it could be stocks. Uh, Jeremy Siegel and stocks for the long run uh, makes the case that stocks compared to gold, compared to bonds, uh, compared to cash, has the best real return, real meaning after inflation. And I think over 100 years, it's something like, you know, after inflation, like 6 to 7%. So according to Jeremy Siegel in his book, he would say stocks. But you know, that if we look at a store of value, we say, okay, if you want to grow your purchasing power, which is, by the way, is what you're doing, you're trying to do when you invest in the stock market, then we got to think about what are people using it for? Are they using it kind of like a 60-40 portfolio where you, know, you have bonds that are supposed to go up when the market goes down or gold as a hedge against inflation? Like, I mean, Jay, if we look at building traditional portfolios and we'll kind of get to the argument for just buying equities and having a, a really good hedge. But I mean, these are trying to diversify or trying to be something that goes up when the market goes down, right? So um, where do you fall on this? Yeah. So as a diversifying agent, I, you know, I don't know anybody that recommends 40% gold, by the way, Derek. Not that you, you meant that when you were talking about 60, 40s. Right? I meant bonds. Bonds, <laughs> of course. Bonds, of course. Yeah. And um, uh, so listen, um, their gold can it, historically gold was viewed as kind of a risk off trade, right? It was a safe haven. Go to gold. Gold's going to hold value, and you know if things are really nasty, uh, then okay, then your gold will probably appreciate, right? And if you're going to have inflation, gold will appreciate, right? Because if the dollar's worth less, it takes more dollars to buy a bar of gold, so gold is worth more, right? Um, those things. Um, gosh, I'll say have traditionally been true, but certainly not the last, you know, decade uh, uh, or more. Um, I, you know, I'm thinking back when, uh, uh, well, you know, I won't go down memory lane on gold's history. We could do it in a minute. But, you know, I, I, I don't think there's anything wrong with holding a gold position as kind of a speculative play, but not as a, not really as a diversifier. Um because there's so many other components that go into it, right? So if you're trying to diversify away from stock risk, gold can go up, but there's a whole bunch of other things that have to happen um, that drive that to be the case. And these days, it's not you know always the situation. You know, and the, the the environment we're in with rates where they are and the dollar where it's trading make you know have to have to make you question: Is gold really a viable hedge? And do I really feel comfortable you know buying enough? of something as uh, disconnected as gold in my portfolio to actually be of any value. So where I fall with it is I have no problem if people want to use it as kind of a speculative directional trade. Uh, that's okay. And it doesn't have to be a two-day trade. It could be a two-year trade. That, that's speculative. It doesn't necessarily have to have a time frame on it. But as a, as a diversifier and a protector, it really hasn't done that lately. You had started to go down memory lane on gold. I'll bring it up with you. I mean, there was... Certainly in the late 70s, early 80s, gold went up. And, and by the way, inflation was up. So you also have to look at what the real return after inflation, if it really is a, you know, an inflation hedge, right? But it certainly went up. That was a, a great period. 
And then you had this period in, I would say, the mid-80s all the way to, what, 2007, where gold really didn't do much. And after inflation, you had negative real returns on it. Lately, we've seen it go up. But I mean, we have had these long periods, Jay, where it really hasn't been additive to the portfolio and it doesn't pay a dividend. And it doesn't pay a dividend, right? I mean, I, so, all right, so I pulled up a chart, right? And I'm looking back at the high in, say, 2011, when gold is below where it was in 2011 right now, right? It was, uh, you know, around 1900. And today the spot price looks like 1825. So, you know, I, you know, that's 10 years. You haven't had a lot of value. And by the way, most of the time, it, it spent most of the last 10 years dramatically below the 1800 level that we're at today. Now, of course, yes, somebody bought it at the high in in 2011, but uh, and so we're not saying that's where it is. But just you know, when you when you're trying to use it as a means of uh, uh, of long term growth in a portfolio, uh, like you said, it probably hasn't it, it hasn't done as well as stocks when you include the inflation aspect of it. And if you take out the inflation aspect aspect of it, the last ten years in stocks have been dramatically better. I wonder if the the move into cryptos by some people um, as a, a store of value, I'll call it, or as a, I don't want to call it inflation hedge, but I, I wonder, see, I, I think the same thing about the VIX, um, really bringing up options where where you and I lie, you know, in our world and volatility. Like it used to be gold would be a hedge uh, against the markets. Bonds would be a hedge against the markets. And bonds, look, no doubt they worked last year. Um you know they they have their issues, right? But they did go up when when the markets tanked last year. But I do wonder if volatility and also cryptos is taking some of the the buyers, let's call it, or the holders away from gold. I I don't know, um, but I think hedging has changed. Yeah, listen, I think there was you know fast money that would run into gold um, uh, when you you would see a spike in a time of um, in times of of risk. Uh, being taken off, meaning the market's selling off. Uh, and I do think now those uh, investors have more choices, um, uh, you know, to move to things like crypto instead. Uh, but there's a lot of other choices out there for investing now anyway. And, you know, those quick moving dollars, you know, are just that. They usually don't stay put very long. Whereas things like equities, you know, people invest in equities and they hold them for a long time, stocks, and they hold them for a pretty long time in general. Uh, you know, when you look at, say, 401ks and just retirement funds, like people get investing for the long term can make sense. Now, I do know people that are long term investors in gold, but it wasn't by choice. <laughs> no, it was, hey, I bought it at fifteen hundred. Oh, boy, I went down to eleven hundred and I'm being encouraged not to sell. You know, so things like that, you know, can get you to be long in it, but not a lot of value in that these days. I did, uh, you know, a lot of people say too, why not go into to tips if you're worried about inflation, treasury inflation, protected bonds. Um, and and people, um, obviously, if inflation goes up, those get readjusted by, by the CPI. Um, the people argue against that would say the CPI is understating inflation. Um, maybe that's a whole separate, I think I did a podcast on that once, I'll link to it. But um, but certainly tips is one way. If, if you just wanted to capture the CPI gain, you know, that would certainly be, be it. Jay, before we move on to, to hedging, you know, one of the, the big pieces of news this week too was so Elon Musk announced that Tesla is putting uh, $1.5 billion, I think uh, it's reported that's about 10% of their cash or cap, cash equivalents. So Jay, the S&P 500, um, I think there's, 
is there one other company? Maybe there's there's more than one other, but uh, is crypto now getting embedded in the S and P? I guess it is, right? Yeah, you know, so if if you know companies like Tesla, which is the largest uh, by market cap that has uh, come out and talked about holding crypto on their balance sheets, if is if companies are going to hold it as you know part of their balance sheet, then they're going to have to report the value of, I mean, they already report the value of their balance sheet, right? And so you're adding in some volatility of crypto, in this case, Bitcoin, into the volatility of an individual stock, which is then, you know, adds into the volatility of the S&P. Now, uh, let's let's do a little math here, right? These days, Tesla is what, four and a half percent of the S&P? Is that about it? I think so, yeah. Right. And if they have 10% 10% of their balance sheet is in crypto. You know, arguably you could say that, you know, if cryptos went to, if Bitcoin went to zero, right, they would lose 10%. That would probably drive the stock down quite a bit, probably not to zero because it's Tesla. But even if it took a 20% haircut from something like that, so now you've got 20% drop in a stock that makes up 4% of the S&P. So you're talking about a, what, less than 1%, 80 basis points, but it is something uh, that that can impact it. I think the other ones are like Square and um, right, PayPal. They they are. I think they're holding a little bit um, uh, of of Bitcoin as well, right? I think those are some of the first ones. And there's some other stocks that are doing that. But you're right. You are now adding in some level of volatility into a much much broader market. But it is minor. Yeah, I mean, and and by the way, co- companies have different exchange uh, variations. You know, one example I can think of, so Netflix issued bonds in euros. And so, you know, they have to pay out uh, the interest payments in euros. And so in theory, right, I don't know if they hold euros. I haven't looked at their balance sheet. Um, Somebody else can do that. But, you know, companies who do business overseas, they have currency risk. So while I disagree that crypto and Bitcoin is a currency, other people argue against me. And I expect the uh, the emails to come in on after saying that, but you know I, I think your point is well taken. It's it's it is on the balance sheet. Um, the one thing I would say, Jay, is you know the balance sheet is you know if if they're if they just have cash on the balance sheet, right? I mean, if it doesn't necessarily change their earnings, it doesn't change their revenues. Um, they could take a, a gain or a loss on an on an investment, but it's it is a balance sheet thing. Um, That's a fair point. Unless they get rid of it, it doesn't really impact their the revenue of the company. Somebody else made the point that uh, the one point five billion in buying Bitcoin is equal to their uh, what do they call it R and D line in their uh, in the reporting last year. So they literally put as much into Bitcoin as they did into research and development. Um, anyway, you and I are not individual fundamental stock analysts. Uh, no, but Derek, what, what do you tell clients that ask, you know, should I buy, should I buy Bitcoin? Like, you know, what, what's, what's your response to them? Well, I, I tell them that, um, you know, you and I have talked about the problem with individual equities because of the volatility. And my response usually to somebody is, you know, you should expect to potentially be down 80% at some point. And, it's it's just a, another asset. Uh, it's incredibly volatile, and you know if somebody who's really hard pressed to do it. You know, it's all about position sizing, right? I mean, I'm I guess you know you and I actually didn't talk about what we what we said to individual clients, but I'm curious your thoughts too. 
Yeah, I uh, a very similar concept, right? Me- uh, measure the amount of risk you're willing to take. I believe Bitcoin has had three sell-offs of 80% or more. So, you know, at some point, you're going to be down on your Bitcoin uh, uh, position, right? It's just something that moves that much will cause that kind of volatility. And, and so if it's, you know, a small enough allocation uh, and managed, you know, that way, it's the first way that we manage risk is by not putting too much into something. Then I I don't have a problem with uh, you know individuals owning it. I mean I just told you I own a little bit. I don't exceed you know and I, I was, my risk tolerance is not everybody's right, but I'm probably on the higher end of it. But you know I don't exceed three percent. And actually when it you know when it went up recently, I ended up saying okay I got to rebalance. There's just I have a little too much in this thing, right? It went to ten to forty in a pretty short period of time. So, you know, got to get out of some of that and kind of rebalance it. And so if you're managing the size of the allocation, and we use allocation as another way of saying, you know, how much you have in a certain, uh, uh, you know, specific strategy, uh, then I, I don't think that's that's bad at all, right? Um, I think you should also be disciplined on your buying and selling, like all things. And we say this about individual stocks, because you can't really protect it. You have to at least be able to manage, you know, once you've managed your trade size, you manage the trade itself. And so you should know what you want to get in at or what you want to get out at once you get in. It's it's always harder to know the exit, isn't it, Derek, than the entry? <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, and it's usually the downside exit that's the hard one. The upside is like, hey, you know, if you, if you buy it today and it's trading at 47,000, you may say, oh, I'm willing to get out at 100,000, which very possible that could happen, right? <laughs> I mean, the, 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 the numbers say that's certain, the, the history tells us that's possible. But you also have to know, are you getting out of it at 20 bucks? Are you getting out at, sorry, 20,000 or 10,000? You know, where are you going to exit on the downside and on the upside? And if you're, and if the answer is, I'm never going to get out of it, then great. Buy it and don't watch it and just be happy you have some, which I know some people that do that too. Hey, I never know if I'm going to need it for some reason in 20 years. Let me just buy some before this thing gets out of control. Yeah. I, I also, I think it's interesting, just like, you know, we, we won't go into the GameStop thing. We've covered that ad nauseum. But I do think it's interesting when you you get texts or emails or calls from people that we know out of the blue who who don't aren't really into the markets, aren't really looking at the markets, and they say, you know, hey, I'm should I be buying Bitcoin? Just like I got the emails to buy GameStop. And by the way, just like I got the text in 2008, should I buy oil individual oil futures? I've never traded futures before. You know, when oil was like 160. So I, I think also, like any asset, if sellers start to, you know, the risk is that you, you go in and you buy something and then selling pressure comes in and you're, and you're left holding it. Um, and it works the inverse too, but yeah, I don't know. Um, we'll, we'll see what happens with, uh, I, I am a little, con- what's the one with the dog? Oh, Doge. Well, it's a perfect example of something that was started as a joke. Right. Uh, there's no utility. There's no value. No one's transacting in Doge. Right. It is just simply uh, a, a trading. Uh, uh, you just trade it and there's no value. Right. It's it's you know, you might as well be betting on which raindrop falls down the window faster. Right. There's no real value there. It is it is being treated these days as, as far as what I know. It's being treated as a straight up trading vehicle. And, you know, our buddy Elon Musk. Not really our buddy, but who seems to want to be in the news with these things, you know, did a hashtag hashtag Doge on his on his Twitter account. And (laughs) when he did that, my 16 year old came walking into the room. Dad, we got to buy Doge. 
I said, okay, well, what, what's, what's the price? And he said, it's three cents. It was, it's up for one penny. It's up to three cents, <laughs> you know? And I said, okay, uh, maybe, maybe let's, uh, I don't know where I could trade that. Right. Cause even like the crypto accounts I have didn't even trade it. I guess it was on uh, Robinhood, And, uh, so we didn't, we didn't end up doing it, but it went to one penny that night, but I did see it at seven cents just yesterday. So it's a straight up, it's a joke. I mean, there's no real value behind it. No one's using it. Like even Ethereum, which is another one of the more popular cryptos has some utility, right? They're using it to transact business at least a little bit. Uh, uh, where the Doge is, it seems to me, it's just a trading thing, but it just, there's, there's hundreds, if not thousands of, of cryptos, right. Uh, of crypto coins. So, you know, if you want to have fun yeah. with it, you go to a casino, you could trade cryptos. I mean, that's, that's just put it in that category, not as a real investment at all. God, I sound like this old guy who's just cranky about like the- I know, I know. What's the matter with us? But have some fun. Yeah. <laughs> trade Doge. I know the, 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 younger, the younger audience is going to be like, these guys just don't get it. Like, so, it, but I, I think what it, the, I used to make fun of people who said, look, I've been doing this a long time. You know, I have wisdom. Like you and I are the certain age. You remember the baseball card bubble in, you know, the eighties into the nineties. I don't know if you still have baseball cards, but the ones, there's a lot of cards that are virtually worthless, but they, it was, uh, you know, Beckett's used to come out with the, the pricing guide and you'd have, you know, somebody's rookie card would be a hundred dollars, you know, and eventually that market crashed. I mean, I know I have cards and I, I don't think anybody wants to buy them. So you know, I'm, I'm, I have no idea what's going to happen with the crypto market, but I, I just think it's people have to be careful when there's a lot of speculation and there's a lot of hype around something uh, that it's going to continue. Um, did, did you collect baseball cards or you were football cards, right? Well, not, I mean, I, yes, I was more football cards, but those I never expected those to have any value. <laughs> like baseball cards. I did, unfortunately. <laughs> no, I, I would, I used to go to the show. I went to a couple of baseball card shows. You know, the problem with, uh, with baseball cards is that, you know, what there's the price and unlike a stock and we'll transition to stocks in a second and hedging, but, um, you know, unlike a tight bid ask spread, you know, if you want to sell your card, unless you sell it to somebody else, if you sell it to a, a you know, a store, a dealer, they've got to make money on the markup, right? So if, if it's $10, they're not going to give you 10 bucks. They're going to give you, you know, seven bucks because they want to make the, the spread there. But all right. Anyway, uh, we'll do, Jay, next time we'll do all about uh, baseball card investing. Well, we could throw comics in there too, right? You know, I got to tell you, I bought, what was it when Superman dies? I remember I bought the comic and I put it in, I never opened it. I put it in plastic and on an inflation adjusted basis, it's, I've lost money on it for sure. <laughs> oh, well. Yeah. So, somebody talked me into buying some comics. Yeah. Was it Sandman? That was the other one. I still have that somewhere. All right. Anyway, so I think when we come back on this, in my mind, you know, if what you're afraid of with stocks, if, if you're using gold, you're using cryptos, or using other things as a hedge on stocks, some, you know, stocks over the long term have, you know, it's, it's been well documented, hundreds of years, the, the best real return after inflation. So in my mind, it begs the question, if what you're, you're using all these other assets like gold for, um, why not just own stocks and just hedge? I mean, to me, it's in the end, it could be a little bit more cost effective 
but you've still got the asset and you still have the hedger's opportunity to buy more if it goes down, right? Yeah, there's a lot, a lot of arguments for hedging. Obviously, it's a big deal for, for you and I. It's what I wrote my book about. It's what we base most of our investors' assets uh, uh, portfolios on. And the, the rationale is if you're worried about the downside, right? And if you're concerned about managing risk, which investing has risk, why not use something that is tied directly to the asset you're holding, right? If you're invested in stocks, why not just protect the stock portfolio, right? Why uh, why not just eliminate the need for, you know, the positive or negative correlation of other assets like, you know, hey, gold goes up when stocks go down or bonds go up when stocks go down. You know, you're, you're hoping that those things, all the things line up for that to happen. But when you can you know, define your risk. You know, there's no, we like to say there's no better way to define your risk and manage your risks than with options. Um, why not use the asset that, you know, gives you the exact protection you're looking for, right? And that's that's why we default to hedges. And so like, I, I know it's fun to talk about the uh, uh, other, uh, you know, assets like gold and, and crypto or it's oil and the dollar, right? But if it's, if it's stocks, stock appreciation, that you're looking for, and then stock protection you're looking for. Why not just use the actual, you know, options on the stock market to create your protection? It's endless, and I make it sound so easy. I know it's not easy for everybody to do it, but in theory, right? The theor- the theoretical position we would take here is use the asset that is mathematically tied or correlates uh, uh, to the thing you're trying to protect, and the options are mathematically tied directly to the to, to the stock market when you're using options on the stock market. I think the other important point too is that, you know, you and I have both been fielding questions from investors, advisors, institution, you know, money managers and things, you know, people we work with, right? Because we, um, you know, Zega obviously does uh, separate account management, does, you know, runs portfolios for other, uh, you know, institutional money, we'll call it, or, or advisor money. But is the market too high? Is should I be investing right now? Should I keep some money in cash? And I think, I think one of the problems we've we've sort of talked about the problem with remaining in cash is you might miss the move and you've got to time the markets. But in a weird way, you know, if you believe that the market is maybe not going to perform over the next ten years, uh, a lot of people say, "Well, well I'll, I'll keep a position in cash." But with with hedging, it's the idea of you know, you lose the first, you know, X percent, but then if you don't lose beyond there, you maintain your purchasing power. It's almost like having a cash reserve and you have what's called, right, the hedging opportunity, the hedger's opportunity, Jay. Yeah. Um, we all have heard the adage, buy low, sell high, right? And, uh, you know, it's hard to do that, easier to say it. Um, but when you're hedging and you've avoided the losses of the market, you have dry powder to put to work. Whether your hedge is profitable or you used, you know, uh, uh, you know, maybe some sort of a construction that you know didn't have you fully invested, you naturally have dry powder. Um, it gives you the chance to do that. You know, we it's it's weird. There's almost a perverse uh, uh, incentive when you uh, are hedged for the market to go really down uh, because. If, if you have to take advantage of the fact that your hedges are making money or you avoided a loss. Um, otherwise, it doesn't necessarily make sense to hedge, right? If it's just because you, you don't want your statement value to drop, that doesn't make a lot of sense because the market seems to always press back to all-time highs, right? Uh, we were just off all-time highs just a few days ago, right? So, you know, if you're, if you're a buy and hold kind of investor and your argument is, well, 
I just hold the market always recovers. You're not, you're not wrong, right? It's why we call our buy and head strategy. It's a play on buy and hold. You're not wrong. The markets do recover, but you got to be able to take advantage when you're hedging and you have this opportunity to do so to, you know, reinvest the avoided losses. So I'll get, I'll give you an example. Um, think about it as you have dollars that didn't decline in value that you can put to work and buy the market at a cheaper price. It's almost like the whole market is at a discount, and but your portfolio is not. And so when you you know take advantage and you take advantage of that opportunity and buy while the market is lower, you're using dollars that didn't lose as much value, right? And so you end up you know owning more stock than you had on the way down for the rebound, right? Uh, you know if the market sells off thirty percent. And you've only sold off 10 because you're hedged at a 10% level. Well, you just avoided 20% of the loss. Well, you could now buy 20% of your account back into the market. And now you've got, you know, easy math, 20% more on the way up than you had on the way down. And so when the market does get back to its all-time high, you've now appreciated at a faster rate than even the market did on its way up. Of course, I'm not including the cost of hedging, and that's something we always have to talk about. But, you know, managing that is where you know, Derek, our, our skill and experience comes in. And, uh, but it's, it's, it's not, it's not hard for the individual investor to learn how to do this. And there are definitely advantages when the market is down to being hedged. So you're saying it's not going to have 80% volatility, like, uh, like Bitcoin, right? <laughs> I, right, right. I don't know the last time the market had an 80% sell off, um, 60 in 07 to 09, but, uh, you might have to go back to the, Great Depression to get the eighty percent sell off, but I, but I bring that up too because one of the, one of the things that you know most people I think when we think about risk it's it's the volatility in in returns and it's also you know the fear of I think part of this too is most people would probably become fearful if the markets went down like they did in two thousand eight two thousand nine right but the hedges do put a floor on the downside. And I think reducing volatility, especially in the, in the last sort of working years before retirement and then early in retirement is one of the important points to, to make on this, right? Uh, I mean, it certainly matters, right? And maybe it'd be helpful if you expanded on that a little bit. Yeah. So let, let's say somebody is, you know, 10, you know, 10 or five years to, to retirement, right? And so if they have an unhedged portfolio, and you have a 2008-like situation. We know the math. We know that if the markets go down, you know, 50%, you need 100% to get back to break even. So if you're five years away from retirement, what does that mean? If you had a million dollars, now you have 500,000. And guess what? The 4% rule, you've just cut your income in retirement, you know, by, by half. And the other point is that, you know, maybe the markets come back, maybe they don't, but you just don't have a lot of years to come back. You're, you're, prime working years, you only have a few left. And so the idea is that to still get the growth, but at the same time, keep the losses small, right, Jay? Because it's at eight, nine, you know, 10%, you're only looking at an eight, nine, 10% gain to get back to break even. That's the first part. The second part is we know that losses early, big losses early, right after retirement are very detrimental. You'd, you'd rather lose late than early when you don't have additions to the portfolio. So that that's kind of in the context. Especially if you're withdrawing money, right? The sequence of your withdrawals and the sequence of the market, you know, can kind of give you a double dip hit, 
right? So in your example, let's say the market does drop, but you're also taking money out. You know, maybe your plan before had you, you know, kind of, hey, I want to take some money out. What I gain, I don't touch the principal um, kind of an approach. Well, if the market's down and you're taking money out, not only do you have to get a rebound in your assets to go back to where you were at the beginning of the year, you also have to make back the money you took out, right? And so that just adds to the difficulty of kind of the maintaining the maintenance of your retirement assets, right? It's got to last you for the rest of your life. And, you know, contrary to popular belief, you know, Derek, you and I've talked about this multiple times. The, uh, the riskiest time of your investment life is not when you're 75, 80, 85. It's the first day you begin taking money out of your retirement account and you no longer have income from your career, from your occupation. That is the riskiest time of your investment life because if it happens early, like you said, and you're withdrawing money, um, you've got you know two things to overcome. Later on in life, when you know, uh, let's say you're 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 planning to live to ninety and you know you're eighty, then okay, you've got ten years left to live. That math is pretty easy. We do see people take more risk in their eighties because now they're looking at the risk tolerance of their heirs, not their own. If they've already you know if it's pretty clear they're not going to run out of money. Um, but when you're, if you retire at 65, 70, you know, you've got 25, 20 years left of investing. You don't want to find yourself running short on cash out of the gate. And hedging will definitely protect that. You know, we don't know when there's going to be a lost decade like 2000 to 2010, right? You, nobody knows when that's going to happen. Um, if you retired in March of 2000, Derek, right? If you weren't hedged, you probably had to figure out another way to supplement your income somewhere. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that that's kind of the the danger there. I, th- I think the other thing too that's important about, um, you know, the questions that we've been getting are: Is the market too high? Is the market overvalued? Should I buy gold? Should I, you know, buy crypto? Should I stay in cash? I think you know one of the things I tell people is that look, if you're hedged, it's like you you really don't have to get the timing right. You know, it's just uh, it's one of those deals where. Even if you invest at the the worst time, you know, let's say you invest and the market goes down fifty percent, the fact that you have a floor, you know, you you lose some, but you inherently get to buy cheaper, and in the long run, it could wind up better, right? Right, that's exactly right. That's- All right, Jay. Well, I think uh, the the moral of, the, of this podcast is uh, everybody should buy. Is it? Cat coin? No, dog coin, right? Is that worse? No, we're not re- recommending. Listen, I think treat it for what it is. Don't consider it an investment. No need to shy away from things that could make you money on a speculative basis. Just, you know, also don't risk money that you can't risk. I mean, that's, that sounds silly and, and intuitively obvious, but, uh, uh, you know, follow that rule. And if you want to invest in crypto, I think there's, it's fine. Right. There's, there's, it's not like criminal activity or anything like that. Right. So invest in crypto. You want to invest in gold, but manage the size of the position. But if you're doing it as a means of offsetting and protecting your portfolio, there's a better way to do that. All right. Send the emails to me because I said crypto is not a currency yet. You can direct those emails to me. Jay didn't say that I did. Uh, also, if anybody wants any 1990s, uh, you know, I was going to give a, a player who didn't pan out in baseball. Um, you know, if anybody wants any Rick Cerrone, like 1985 uh, baseball cards, let me know. I, I probably got some. You can have them. Rick Cerrone, of course, was a catcher for the New York Yankees. He is not in the Hall of Fame, though. So huh. Surprising. He didn't make it to the Hall of Fame. <laughs> uh, apparently, you have to hit more home runs and hit 
for a better average and play many more years than Rick Cerrone did. Although he was a, he was a pretty good catcher. I mean, for the he was 19, 1981, I think, wasn't he in the World Series, Jay? Did I? You know, what? you're more of a football guy. I yeah, really. You know, eleven year old year old watching the Yankees. Not I wasn't there. I wasn't. Uh, I can't. Yeah. I'll, love to I'll catch. tell you what. If you want any of Jay Scott Bruner, New York Giants, who was a quarterback. Uh, yeah, I got the jersey. Ali Haji Sheik kickers. Yeah, maybe you can you can have some of those. Um, I have I have a closet full of those that I'm collecting. <laughs> do Do you have the Ali Haji Sheik one? Wasn't he the guy who who? I don't. I don't. Well, you remember in 81, he kicked the field goal uh, to put the Giants in the playoffs over Dallas. Remember, they, they wore white at home to force Dallas to wear blue. And that was the first time the Giants were in the playoffs in years. Yeah, it took a long time. We st- that's right. Well, because Dallas was so dominant during that, that, that time period, 70s, 80s. So, yeah, Aliyah Sheik. I've got all kinds of jerseys. Listen, my favorite still is Jeremy Shockey, right? That's not so obscure, maybe. Maybe it is. Still love that. Guy. Not Bavaro, huh? Not Mark oh, I got, Bavaro. I got a Bavaro. I got a. Uh, oh my god, who's the other guy? He went to the. Uh, anyway, listen. I think we're off topic here, Derek. Sorry, we got, we got off here. But if you're interested right. in uh, uh, sports nostalgia, Derek's got uh, clearly. Derek's got the expertise for you. All right, Jay. Well, thanks for coming on again. I think this was good. We talked about uh, you know a lot of the questions we've been getting on these, and hopefully we frame it. In the end, it's just just be hedged. So. All right, that's it for episode 104. Uh, As I always say, rather than wasting time liking and rating, uh, just go ahead and share this with someone that you think might enjoy a podcast, uh, even if they've never had an experience with a podcast. uh, Just send them the link. So, All right, Jay, thanks again, and we'll be back next week.